glad that you're with us and a special welcome to our um, to those who gather in homes and in uh, coffee shops and other places and together are going through Romans. So to our satellites and other groups that gather, we're so grateful that you join us. Not because we think we're fabulous, but because we think God is and that uh, the book of Romans is such a wonderful kind of love story of God to us by his grace. And so it's an honor to get to uh, come talk to you today um, I want to talk to you today about smoking. Um, I'm going to spend the whole half hour or so talking to you about why you shouldn't smoke. Um, so to prepare, I got into the Bible um, to find all the scriptures about not smoking. Um, I didn't find any, so it's a short talk. Um, but uh, I also want to talk to you about not going to movies. So I looked in scripture couldn't find any scriptures on movies either, um, so I was a little disturbed. But I grew up in a church that, in essence, told me that smoking movies were an absolute sin against God, as was dancing, any alcohol, and a myriad of other things. Now, in this church, which was filled with very loving people, good hearts, I don't besmirch their character in any way, but it is the fact that I feel like I was raised being told these things you do not do, rather than suggested to me that would you search the scripture about these things? Do not dance, it's a very bad thing. So I looked up dancing, because I was gonna talk about that too. The problem is that the Bible is pro-dancing. <laughs> Another short talk, just so you know. Don't drink anything. Well, the problem is the Bible doesn't say don't drink alcohol. It says don't get drunk. So I kept running into these walls when I wanted you to be holy. I was going to come and prepare a talk so you would be holy people. But I kept running into these issues about what you should and shouldn't do. So the reason that you shouldn't smoke is because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I looked that up. Well, the passage where our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit isn't talking about smoking, sorry. I still don't think you should smoke, nor should I. I tried it one time. It wasn't that fun. Um, but it still is not good for your body. But see, I grew up in a church where don't smoke, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, but they never told us how much fat you could apply to the temple, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> your temple could grow. We had uh, church potlucks where everything was fried but the dessert. And it was profoundly buttery and sugary and that kind of thing. So I say that to say simply that, that the church at large, I don't just mean my little church in the Midwest, I mean the church at large, we have developed these rules, these almost cultural taboos that we say, no, don't do that, that's bad, just for this reason. But we haven't always taught people to see what the word says, to go after it and say, what about this? If you look at dancing, you go to David's story in the Old Testament, David danced before the Lord, his wife, who didn't think he should dance, he, she thought it was inappropriate, so she hated him in her heart, and she never had any kids. Now, some of you wish you had maybe gotten that once you've got your seven children, and you're wondering <laughs> if that was a good thing. But bottom line is, it's like dancing is not a bad thing. But there's inappropriate dancing. 
If you're taking up a pole dancing class for making money on this, I don't. It's not right. There are ways that dancing is not good, but dancing in and of itself is not biblically a bad thing. I grew up with an alcoholic grandfather and an alcoholic father. I think alcoholism is brutal. I think it's destructive. But it doesn't, I mean, Jesus turned water to wine, not grape juice, wine. But we don't want to balance that because we're afraid that if we give any freedom, that people are going to take it to the nth degree. So we're protecting those around us. Not only do we do that, but as we learn what's right or wrong, I'm going to protect you by telling you what not to do, how not to do it, how to live. How did the church at large get to this point where we have all of these rules, taboos, that, that we can't even find in the Bible, at least not the way the Bible intends them? Last week, uh, you were in Romans 13. And one verse, verse 8, I want to bring up, and it says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So we've got this, like you do have a debt to others, to love them. And yet, Paul is addressing in this letter to the Roman church, and it would have been passed around to other churches as well in the first century. And he's talking about you, this debt of love. And then we get into chapter 14, and it starts this way, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One, per one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. In Romans 14 and the first part of 15 that you looked at this week on your own, Paul talks about the importance of unity in the church. And he's not just saying, can't we all just get along? He's making a specific point that is not, it's not just about, come on, you guys, behave yourselves. It's about a discipleship issue in me and in you. It's who we are, how we are, and how we become these people, how we continue to grow in our likeness to Christ. He's addressing our attitude toward one another, and, and the example he uses, or the, the case he uses, would have been very typical in the first century church. It would have, these would have been hot issues. And he says this, the weaker Christians are kind of weak on grace and heavy on rules. The mature Christians that he's talking about would be those who are really strong on grace but light on the rules. Now, when I say rules, I mean uh, cultural norms and that kind of thing, what they thought was important. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but it helps to clearly see that's kind of the juxtaposition he's looking at that will apply today between us. Now, those who he calls the weaker Christians, are those who are probably newer to faith. And they, Paul realized in the first 11 chapters of Romans, has set up what grace is. We're saved by grace through faith. Everybody is. And so 
Weaker Christians be those who are so steeped in Jewish law that it's really hard for them to imagine they don't still have to perform. This is how God will love us. This is how God will accept us. So they're, they're new to faith. They've heard about grace. They embrace grace, but they're still carrying, in essence, all these rules. And so when others who have freedom, who Paul would call the mature Christians, well, no, it doesn't matter. They're like, I think it does. And so they're struggling with that. So what it comes down to, if we go down to Romans 14, what I'm going to read it again, is accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. That's in the NIV, the New International Version. The New Living says, don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. And the New Revised Standard says, stop quarreling over opinions. So Paul's not talking about moral issues. The Bible's pretty clear on don't, don't murder. Um, sexual issues, and all these things that, that are violations of God's laws, okay? He's not talking about those. He's talking about disputable matters, opinions, what one person thinks is right or wrong. And he chooses a couple of examples that would have been hot topics in the early church because the one on eating meat is addressed in his letter to the Corinthians as well. So the thing about meat was this. In the marketplace, if you went to buy meat, some meat would have been sold to the, um, to the temple to other gods. These other, they worshiped other gods and that kind of thing. And they would have bought meat as a sacrifice, but they might not have used it all and they might have brought, brought it back to the marketplace. So people saying, this meat could have been offered to idols. Don't buy it, don't eat it. That's what a weaker Christian would say because, well, I mean, it's offered to idols, that's bad. A mature Christian goes like, I don't even believe in the idols. What they're doing doesn't impact, it's meat. God calls all things clean. I can eat that meat. So you have this, but no, what if that's a bad thing? But no, it's not a bad thing. I'm free. Now, wherever you find yourself today, you might say, well, yeah, I get their side. Not theirs so much. The other issue had to do with sacred days. One calls this day sacred, one another. Uh, something to be similar for us today would be that... Um, if you're a, a pastor, you work at a church, um, then chances are good that Sunday isn't the best Sabbath for you. <laughs> Just saying. You probably work a lot on Sunday. But the Bible teaches Sabbath. And yet I know people who, who even pastors, who worked like they work all morning and then they work really hard to make the last part of Sabbath. I also know a lot of pastors who Monday is their Sabbath a day to set aside to rest, to be with God, to get filled up. So the early church was arguing about holy days, what days to set apart. And it was beginning to divide the church. It wasn't working out well for them at all. Today in the church, we have a lot of debates about different topics. Women in leadership. I'm not just talking at C, I'm talking across the church, capital C. Drinking alcohol. Manifestations of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues or other things like that. The day that you worship. So many other things that the church at large doesn't agree on. That's why we have so many denominations. Everybody just starts their own that thinks like them. Or we won't go from church to church to find one that thinks exactly like us. 
The problem is most of the time it's on issues that Paul would call disputable. Now you say, how can you call women in leadership disputable? Well, because I've studied it a lot. And the scriptures, depending on how you read them, support both, both positions. Women in leadership in the church, I get to have a job. And that women should not be in leadership in the church. You know what? Jesus Christ died for everybody. And he knows us. He died for men and women and all that. And that's what draws us together. The cross draws us together. Social issues, disputable matters, is not supposed to split us up. That's Paul's point right here. So three things. How do we navigate this in the church? Because we do have opinions. I mean, I've been on staff here at the church for over 28 years. I was very young when I started. (laughs) But in that time, especially in the first 10 to 15 years, it was not uncommon for someone to come up to me and say, like, I, I like you fine. How do you do this based on what Scripture says? And, you know, at, at first, my answer was, I, I, don't, I don't know. Jesus told me to. I don't know. <laughs> and then God challenged me that I should have an answer for what I believe. And I wasn't sure what I believed, <laughs> other than I thought I was supposed to be here. So that's why I studied it so much. And now I know what I believe. I believe God called me here, and it's a good thing. But I've never been angry at somebody who didn't think that God called women to lead in churches because it's a disputable matter, and I get that. So three things that I think can help us with this. How we navigate. The first is this, knowledge and wisdom. In the church I was raised in, I don't think we're ever taught to unpack the word. Cheryl, last week, if you were here, did such a good job about saying, get in the word, know what it says. With all of her study Bibles that she showed us and stuff, it's like, get into the word, know what it is the Bible says and what you believe. Do it prayerfully. Don't look to support or, or, um, or deny an argument. Do it to find out the truth. Because God is a God of truth. Sometimes a verse or a phrase in the church can be used or quoted out of context, which we know Cheryl doesn't like that, out of context, or with a desire to, to oppress or to control people. No, the Bible says this. Rather than a desire to know what's true, a lot of the word is used as a caution and a warning. It's just used to smack you, to control us, to say, don't do that, don't do that. Now, there are things you shouldn't do. There are things we should be controlled and smacked upside the head with the Bible sometimes. But by and large, know what it says. Because grace pervades from Genesis to Revelation. But grace has a lot of boundaries also. Because God wants goodness for his people, doesn't he? An example, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 10, says this, In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. So men are always to pray with their hands raised. (laughs) And it goes on, it says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves 
by the way they fix their hair, or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. If you have a hairdresser, stop it. <laughs> Just let your hair do whatever God made it to do. Frightening, I know. Don't wear pearls. I know, I'm so sorry. I'm, so sorry. I'm not sorry at all at all because if you study this what we find is this one says don't wear expensive clothing gold or pearls or sometimes I like say braid your hair or in essence fancy hairdos but what he's talking about there if, if if you study it not just read the line and say oh apply that so what he's talking about is that in the um in the other temples and women who who were not Christ followers who were part of the culture but also those who were temple prostitutes and that kind of thing this is how they dressed. There were women who wore very expensive clothes, and even when they came to synagogue, they'd be like, what do you think? Because they're trying to draw attention to themselves. Aren't they rich or aren't they beautiful, whatever else? Paul's point here is that we are not, as women, we are to, when it says modest, everybody doesn't look good in a turtleneck. It's like you don't all have to wear turtlenecks. It's not that. It's not about covering up from your chin to your toes. It's modesty within the culture you live in. Because see, Paul is saying, like, be careful how you dress, because what's the most important thing to Paul? If you've read any of his letters, which you have now because you've been in Romans, Paul's big thing is the gospel. Christ came to save sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. So as he's talking to the church, this must have something to do with the gospel. So he's saying to them, he's not saying dress down so much that everybody will know you're not them. That's not what he's saying. The same when he goes on, I don't want to get into the topic, when he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. There were issues going on in the early church that had, had to do with, with women like, enjoying their freedom and speaking up too much and disrupting. So if you look at it in context, you're Paul saying, when you get dressed in the morning, in, in America in 2019, if you wear pearls, it doesn't say anything about you other than you probably have a lot of taste. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. It's like he's just saying dress appropriately before God. So if you come to Bible study and you just want to make sure you look a little better than everybody else, bad attitude. Don't do that. That's what Paul's saying. Don't dress to impress if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, think in terms of like, I look sane. <laughs> I will not frighten them in any way. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 15, it says this. A widow who is, this is the same letter now from Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? So in the early church, uh, if someone were a widow um, and they had no family to take care of them, then there was a, a list, if you will, for widows who were taken care of by the church. Apparently, you had to be at least 60, and you had to, your kids have to be fabulous, 
I mean, I would apply so far. Your kids have to be fabulous, and you have to have, like, invited people in your house. You, everyone must think you're wonderful. And then the church will help take care of you. Now, that's okay, I, you know, whatever. First Timothy 5, 9 through 15, carrying on the same thing. A widow who is put on the list for support must, oh, I just read that, starting in verse 11. The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again, have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them. I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. Now, some of them may have. I'm not mocking Paul. What I'm saying is that in that culture, if you were under 60, apparently, you were more prone to gossip and lust. Now, when I was 59, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true. I also know I could not have gone and got, had more kids at that point. But like he, he juxtaposes these things, and yet I don't know a church, I don't know of a church that has a widow's list for 60 and above, and that everyone else has told you better get married again. I'm so sorry your husband died, you have one year. Get married, don't gossip, don't follow Satan. It's like, some things are cultural, right? But there are churches who could dispute this. Because if you're on over 60, you can still lay around watching soap operas, eating bonbons and gossiping, right? It's not a cultural thing here. For us, it's like, what are you doing with your life? Have knowledge, have wisdom about what, what the word says and why it says that. Don't pat yourself on the back because you're over 60 and why doesn't the church take care of you? That's not the issue. Find out what the issue is, what Paul is saying. In studying this passage, it becomes clear that there's an important value that Paul's teaching. And some of it is culturally significant. Be able to separate this for us. I can't imagine that our church would ban women from wearing pearls or gold or going to the hairdresser. It doesn't make sense. But Paul is saying, and what we need to take on, is how is it you present yourself that could be offensive or could keep other people from listening to you? Paul's saying, women who do this, the gospel is, is shut down. They're not going to be able to talk about the cross and the grace of God, if their life has taken this thing, if they're gossiping and if they're, if they're messing around with men and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, live a life in this culture. Live a life where when you say God is good and Jesus Christ died for you and I once was lost, now I'm found. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. Are people gonna want what you have? It's a significant question. And Paul's saying that these disputable matters are the very things that are making the gospel without honor. It's making the gospel unattractive to people. 
Yes, they found freedom. These women were finding freedom in Christ. Remember, if you know anything about the Old Testament, like in the, in the synagogues and stuff, there was a women's court. They couldn't even go to church with the guys. There was a women's court, and women had, had no stature in terms of, of honor and that kind of thing. And now in the early church, Jesus says, you know, like I, all of them, he had good friends who were women. Paul says in Galatians, there's neither Jew or Gentile, male or free, uh, slave or free, male or female. And so now that like the playing field is equal, God sends his Holy Spirit on everybody, Jew and Gentile. It's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. But in that freedom, how will you use it? How will it impact the way you share the gospel? Know what you believe. Don't develop arguments from the leftovers of other people's soapboxes. That's not going to be good. Know what you believe. Go after it prayerfully. Read the word and then obey it. Ask God. As it says in Psalms 139, 23 and 24, search my heart, know me, test my thoughts, and then show me, Lord. That's what I mean by knowledge and wisdom. Go after what it is you believe. The second thing that I think guides us is our attitude. What we're standing for and what we're fighting for. What are the lines you draw in the sand? My daughter-in-law lives in the Santa Clarita Valley and um, is the head of a nonprofit called Love Our Valley. And basically, the, the point of the nonprofit is to gather churches together to meet the needs of the Santa Clarita Valley. Feed the hungry. Find homes or, or ways to help the homeless. It's like, who else but the churches should gather, right? So that's it's a great nonprofit. Let's do that. And she's told me how hard it is in talking with pastors to get them to agree to join, to join together with, with churches of another denomination. And one pastor actually said to her, well, I think it sounds good, but I, I just feel called to protect the gospel. I know, I didn't know what that meant either. So I said, what does that mean? She goes, I'm not sure. <laughs> what does it mean to protect the gospel? You know, part of the gospel is the fact that if you give a cup of cold water to a thirsty person and you do it in Christ's name, it's like giving it to Jesus. Seems to me that's a part of the gospel that we're called to. And yet our attitude about us and them is causing such division in the church at large and is crippling the gospel that we're trying to proclaim. Who wants to hear about the love of God from someone who doesn't know how to show the love of God? That's this attitude that we're talking about. Are there issues that you have, pet peeves, that can get you stuck in judgment and the gospel gets stuck in you and isn't coming out because of your own judgments and pet peeves? Because that's what Paul's talking about. That's the attitude. Who is it that you just, you hope someone else tells them about Jesus because you just don't like them? John Stott says this, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle is better even than the golden rule to treat others as we would treat ourselves. It is safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it is safer still to treat them as God does. And 
seldom, seldom are we stuck on things that are large moral issues. We're stuck on things that are our pet peeves or things that we think should be most guarded. And if we're talking about those who don't know Christ, you can't hold them in judgment by moral rules and laws that they don't even know. If they're not a follower of Jesus Christ, they're not going to live by your same set of rules, right? Or guidelines, whatever you want to call them. No. That's what love, that's where love um, breaks down the barrier between us. That's the point of the cross. And yet we allow those differences within the church and outside the church to block the flow of the gospel in our lives, through our lives, and therefore through the church. Remember, we're all justified by faith. Romans 1 through 11 kept saying, this is what it looks like. This is what grace looks like. It's not in your ancestry. It's not in the law. It's, not in, the, it's in Jesus Christ. And then we get to 12.1, and you've already been here, but 12.1 says, so, because of the first 11 chapters, so present your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't let culture squeeze you into its mold. Don't let culture make you denominational in a way that's detrimental to the gospel. Do you want most to be right? Do you most just want to be right? Do you judge others out of fear or ignorance? Well, if it's okay, but it's not okay for me, I don't know where that leaves me. Prayerfully, ladies, ask the Holy Spirit to come in, to touch to lead, to guide, to change your heart. Attitude, our knowledge and our attitude. Remember that Jesus in Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus, that our attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who though he was God, I mean, he pretty much had nailed everything, right? He was God. He didn't think equality with God was something to be held on to, but he humbled himself. Whatever you think you know, however grateful you are for the grace of God that's come to you. We humble ourselves for the sake of the other, for the sake of the gospel. The third thing in how we navigate our differences is love. You don't have to sacrifice truth in order to love other people. The truth for you. If you are wrestling with an issue as to its merit or lack of merit, Look at verse 6 through 10. I'm talking about, again, disputable matters, not moral laws, okay? It says this, those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. For we don't live for ourselves or die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died, rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and the dead. So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. One day we're all going to stand. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then when he wants to talk to us about something, he'll be like, you got this part wrong, but I love you. Bad attitude here, but I love you. God and God alone is able to judge. We as Christians must look at any practice in our own life and say, can I do this before God? Can I do this knowing he's looking right at me? 
Can I do this as an offering to God? Because if we, and that means eating. Sometimes I don't know why I ask God to bless the food that's in front of me because I know he's thinking, seriously, Kath, we've talked about this. <laughs> so thank you, Lord, for all your provision. And then I eat it anyway. Seems like a small thing. But those kinds of things, is the way I'm living my life, is it before God? Like, God, thank you for this. Thanks for this meeting I had with someone. Thanks for the movie I just went to see. It was a delight. Whatever it might be, can we do what we do before God to honor him? Because when we do that, then we see other people. We have space for them to do as they do before God. And when we respond to others, we must allow for grace and love to fill and guide us. What is it that God sees when he looks at that person? Don't try to answer that without a lot of grace and a lot of love. What is it that you love most? Too often, we let our grip on our freedom win over our love for others. But I have a right to this. But yeah, I can do this. Because Paul's talking about the things we do hurting weaker those whose, whose grace is not as strong. So an example for us in this day and time, a lot, of, a lot of people like have a glass of wine with dinner and that kind of thing. Alcoholism is not a problem for them. They just do that. But other people, that's a huge deal, whether it's because of where they came from, because of their family situation. So we can say, uh, yeah, I'm going to have a, a women's party. There'll be plenty of wine. It'll be great. And we don't do that. The church doesn't do that. Because there are those, you can want to have wine at your dinner table, I have no objection to that. But as a church, we know that here we have people with different consciences. And what Paul is saying is consider the conscience of others in what you do so that you don't cause someone else to lose their faith, to be wounded in their faith. Probably the best example is this. I mean, that I found that I think is pretty stark. In Acts 16, verses 1 to 5, Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left, for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Then they went from town to town, instructing the believers to follow the decisions made by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Wow, what an amazing thing happened on this journey. The churches were encouraged, people came to Christ. It started with a grown man having to be circumcised. In our culture today, you and I would say, like circumcision, Paul teaches, circumcision isn't the way to Christ anymore. It's not an issue. Why would Paul ask, why would Timothy say yes to circumcision? as an adult male, because the most important thing to them was that the gospel be heard. It wasn't about Timothy's rights. We're so American in our thinking and our individual rights, but, but where is God asking you to set down your individual rights for the sake of someone else's faith, for the sake of someone else's discipleship and transformation and growth in Christ? Are you willing to listen? Are we willing to trust that God has a way for us. 
I know that there are moral issues that are absolute. I'm just not convinced that the hills we choose to die on are moral issues, that they're as important to God as they are to us. And that's really the point of Paul's words in this. What Paul says matters most is that we love one another, that the love of God, the law of love in Christ, is what the church is called to, and that the decisions we make would be those so that everyone within our, our body, within the body of Christ at large, would come to know him in deeper and broader ways, and that the world around us would come to know Jesus by looking at our life, individually and collectively, what we look like. I want to say just in closing that if you uh, didn't look in the homework book, if you didn't look at the section by J.D. Greer about um, Old Testament laws, it's really, really helpful. One of the best things I've seen on how to discern why we don't preach against uh, tattoos when it mentions it in Leviticus that you shouldn't get a tattoo. And if you're wondering about that, go there. But the three kinds of laws, it's just a really good thing about civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. And I think it might help if you have questions in that area. Pray with me if you would. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thanks for your grace. And Lord, I just can confess, Lord, that there are times when I want my way, and that becomes the hill that I want to die on. That I take things that are disputable matters, and I choose to to die on that hill when it's not one that you chose. So God, I pray that, that me individually and we as a group of your daughters, Lord, that we would find our way into your word, that we would go after it with open hearts and the leading of your Holy Spirit, that our lives would look more like you and that we would not get caught in the kind of disputable matters that divides the church makes the world around us despise the way we are and dilutes or blocks the gospel of Jesus Christ. God have mercy on us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you ladies as you go.